Welcome, and thank you for tuning into the Graceland Church Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus and love our neighbor for the good of the city. Thank you, Daniel and Kirsten. That was an original from Daniel Standish, and they just played it together for the first time this morning. It was awesome. Thank you. And Kick, thank you for the kind words, man. I don't know if I can live up to Jordan. Maybe Kobe. I don't know. I don't, I'm going to give him my best shot, but man, love you, dude. I knew you were my favorite. I'm just saying. <laughs> Thanks for the kind words, buddy. Uh, before I get into the message today, I want to just give a report. Our youth had a phenomenal time at camp. Graceland Youth right here. I'm repping. Our youth pastor, Pastor Oscar Barajas, and our other counselor, Abby Ortiz, are alive and well and still passionate about knowing Jesus. My, one of my daughters went, and I've been seeing pictures and videos, hearing stories of kids putting their faith in Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit, feeling like God spoke to them about what they're called to do in their life, and we're just so thankful. Keep praying for our youth, and our kids leave this Wednesday, Wednesday to Saturday, 30-something of our third to fifth, sixth graders are going to camp, so be praying for those kids as well. I also have an exciting announcement. About a week and a half ago, Rachel and Brandon Maynard welcomed uh, baby Gemma Maynard. Here she is on screen. She is beautiful. Let's give them a hand. I found out that when she first was pregnant uh, with Gemma, they had a very difficult report from the doctor that said both Rachel and Gemma had a 50-50 chance of survival on the birth date. And I'm happy to say they're both completely healthy, baby and mama, so we're giving thanks uh, to God for that. We have a meal train set up for them that you, we're going to put the link in our weekly email this week. So if you're not on our email list, just use a connection card or you can use the online uh, connection card. You'll get a link to the mail train. It'll also be on Facebook. And then uh, we also have a meal train for another family, the Kutz family. And I, I just got to say, so Steve Kutz, was it Tuesday or Monday? On Monday, Steve right here was rushed to the emergency room with a widowmaker heart attack, we found out after the fact, that the doctor said had a 12% survival rate. And Steve's father, if you don't mind me saying, went home to be with the Lord in his late 40s from the same heart attack. And Steve is in his young 40s now, so it was intense. And he's here, <laughs> and I'm happy to say, He's probably breaking doctor's orders right now because I, I saw the photo of him walking out of the hospital and refusing a wheelchair the day after the heart attack. So we are thanking God for divine protection on you, Steve. And our whole prayer team uh, went right to spiritual warfare prayer. We love you guys. Um, so the main idea of this series that we're in through the Gospel of John I believe is incredibly important and helpful for us right now, and it's this. In a world full of cynicism and death, we can be filled with belief and life through Jesus. I get to meet with a lot of people, and one of the most common things I see people wrestling with right now is they are battling with their faith because they're facing something that they do not understand. And they're asking questions like, why would this happen? How could God allow this injustice or this suffering or this pain 
Where is God? And the text we're going to look at today as we start chapter 9 of the Gospel of John uh, addresses this really powerfully. And the title today is, When I Don't Understand. The whole chapter of 9 is one continuous story. And we're going to start with the first 12 verses today. You can turn there now in your Bible or on your phone. It'll also be on screen. Let's read. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is the man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Let's pray. Lord, we consider it an incredible privilege to sit at your feet, the great teacher, and learn from your word. And we just collectively right now make that the posture of our heart. We want to hear from you, and we thank you for the promise of your word, that it has power, that it is your voice speaking to us, and that your spirit makes it alive in us and even causes it to apply to each of our specific individual circumstances. So God, we are desperate to hear you today, to connect with you today. Give us ears that can hear you. Give us eyes that can see you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You gotta put yourself... In the situation, Jesus is walking around now doing ministries with his disciples. So these are young men that have said, we'll give everything to follow you, Jesus. And they are on the journey. And they come across this man who's been suffering as a beggar because of his blindness. We find out later in the chapter for over 40 years. So this has been a hard life. And the disciples in front of everybody ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, who sinned so that this suffering would happen? Is it his fault? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And it's a similar question that a lot of us find ourselves asking. It gets to a core question we have, which is, what do we do with the suffering and evil in the world? And before we're quick to put ourselves outside of the category of the disciples, I think if we think of our culture right now and the world we're in, anytime we see someone, whether in person or on TV or social media or hear a report uh, that is suffering down and out in some kind of circumstance that is tragic, don't we sometimes want to get to the heart of it and be like, whose fault is this, right? Is it their fault or is it their parents' fault? Is it the system's fault? We're looking for some kind of answer. Who sinned so that this would happen? And Jesus immediately corrects them. He he basically says, 
you guys are immediately wrong. He lets them know that they were wrong even in the question because they're only giving two options. They're saying it's definitely the result of someone's sin. It's either his or his parents. And those are the only two options they're giving him. Kind of like the friends of Job in the book of Job. If you haven't read that book in the Old Testament, Job was a man of God who came upon immense suffering. He lost his children. He lost, lost all his possessions. He lost his businesses. And he had friends that were trying to help him make sense of it. And if you read the book of Job, it's, it's a wild read because his friends essentially are saying, Job, this is happening as an expression of God's disapproval of you in some way or another. And if you read the whole book, you eventually find out they are completely wrong in their assessment. That is not at all why Job is going through this. And the same would be true of this story right here. Look what Jesus said in verse three. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. He corrects them. And let me just by way of a side note say, it's a good thing to get corrected by Jesus. Anytime Jesus starts to correct you, just say, yes, I wanna receive that. Because Jesus is gonna lead us to the truth and to life. We talked a little bit about it last week. Let's not resist his correction. Let's embrace his correction. And he does that with his disciples right here. And it's interesting also to note, just as a little side sermon, the disciples of Jesus, the ones who were closest with him at this time, were wrong in this particular moment. How many of you have ever realized that disciples of Jesus can be wrong? I'm a disciple of Jesus and I'm wrong a lot. Can anybody say that with me? You're a disciple of Jesus. I'll just say it to you. You're wrong a lot. <laughs> so am I. This can help us a little bit though because that applies even when we've really been hurt by disciples of Jesus. People get hurt in the name of Jesus by followers of Jesus because every follower of Jesus is in process. None of us have arrived. We're on this side of eternity and we don't have the heart of God all perfectly figured out, now do we? And I think it's important to note that right here. His disciples were publicly wrong in this scenario. And then Jesus goes on to say something that is a hard thing to accept, and we're gonna spend some time on this. Jesus said, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And he's talking about the blindness of this 40-something-year-old man who has suffered as a beggar on the street because of his blindness. So when you think about the reason for that from Jesus, God in the flesh being, this happens so that the works of God might be displayed, if we're really honest about that answer, it doesn't seem very sufficient. It's a tough pill to swallow. There's a scholar and a pastor that I've been studying a lot in this series through the Gospel of John. He's one of a handful. His name is Paul Lebutillier, and he said this, when it comes to that specific passage. I can quote it, but I don't understand it. In fact, whenever I try to understand God's purposes, I come up short. When I think about this explanation in light of his suffering, it doesn't make sense. And I would say the, true, the same is probably true for every single one of us here, that when we try to make sense with like a, a, a neatly tied theological answer to the suffering in the world, and we try to we try to put language to all of God's purposes, we tend to come up short. I have in many times in my own life and in pastoring people and in my family's life run into circumstances and situations where the only response is, I have no idea why God would let this happen. Don't understand, 
even frustrated about it, perhaps angry about it. And for sure, I know that I'm talking very directly to some of you here that are in situations like this right now. And I think the really important first question to ask, and I learned this from this pastor, I think it's a profound question, and I'm just directly quoting it from him. Number one in your notes, do I think that what I know is all there is to know? Today's just going to be four questions, and that's the first one. A lot of Christians kind of believe they do know there is. They kind of believe they do know all there is to know. The problem with that kind of thinking is when something then happens that doesn't make sense, that thing that doesn't make sense becomes an offense to them that can cause them to completely walk away from the Lord. You know, when we think of this guy who was suffering 2,000 years ago, the blind beggar, our hearts probably don't break for him. We're probably not too worried and concerned for him because as we're about to read, he gets healed. But, but we do worry about our suffering and we do worry about the suffering of those around us. And when we're in a situation that's impossible to understand, it's really good to humble ourselves before the Lord and just declare, okay, I know that what I know is not all there is to know. It's a great understatement to say that I'm playing checkers and God is playing chess. It's more like I'm kicking around a rock in the street and God is playing a game a thousand times more complex than the greatest chess masters that have ever lived. Are you tracking with me? We need to have the humility to say that God is God and I am not. And then it leads us to the second question. Do I believe that God is who he says he is and that he is doing more than I can understand? Do I even think that's a possibility? According to scripture, first of all, God is God. And if God is God, it means I'm not God. Also, according to scripture, God is love. God is good. God is all-powerful. God is perfect justice. justice. God is perfect wisdom. God is perfect in holiness. So we have to ask ourselves, in these seasons of life, do we believe, can we hold to a glimmer of hope that God is who he says he is? Can we say, I believe that God knows everything and has the power to do anything and is perfectly good? It can be hard to reconcile in seasons of suffering. Now, it's interesting. God actually gives us the freedom, if we want to, to say, no, we don't believe God is who he says he is. And we actually, in fact, want to set ourselves up as the judge. We wouldn't say it that way, but we essentially say, I want to become the judge and jury of all the good and bad in the world, including God. And I don't know if you've ever tried that as a thought experiment, even for just like 10 minutes. But if you truly put yourself in the judgment seat and you say, I am going to determine all that is right and wrong in the world, and I'm even going to judge God himself, it unravels very quickly because we don't have a clue what to do. We might think one rock needs to move over there, like we could kick this rock there in our overly simplistic thinking, but we don't have a clue about the massive chess game that is being played by the living God. Look what Isaiah 55 says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, this is just true. And he says it really plainly here. He says, 
My thoughts literally aren't your thoughts. Not they're a little different. They're not the same. We can't think in the same way he does apart from being born of him and him renewing our mind. And I just want to note, this is in no way meant to come across in harshness because I know in deep moments of lack of under, rather, in moments of lack of understanding that cause deep pain, these things aren't necessarily a comfort, but they begin the process of us continuing to humble ourselves before the Lord and declare who we believe he is so that we don't just run away. Are you guys tracking with me? So I'm just trying to give you some tools based on scripture. And then reading on in verse four of John nine, Jesus said, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So this is just a metaphor really using night and day. And day is... He's saying when we can do the work of the Lord that we've been sent to do, night is the limit on our time. So Jesus is saying, I'm about to do this miracle because it's day. And one thing we can be sure of as followers of Christ is that this is our day. This is our two day. And it's telling us to look at our lives with a healthy perspective. And I want to ask you this as the third question. Am I using my limited time to do the works I've been sent to do? By the way, this is a great question to ask in the midst of pain and in the time when you don't understand because the temptation in a, in a time when you don't understand is to turn everything internal. Isolate, only think about yourself, get in your own head all day, every day. And I believe Jesus is reminding us in seasons like that, we need to be called back towards the work we've been called to do, which is others focused, right? And it's not just for people who are like vocational missionaries or ministers, it's for all of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you immediately become a sent one of Jesus. You are sent to a certain people at a certain place at a certain time to do the works of God in their life. And I do want to highlight a, a missionary. It's the first Sunday of the month. We're going to take communion at the end of the service, which we do each first Sunday, and we highlight a missionary. I want to put a quick pause on the message and weave this in. I want to introduce you uh, to this family. I'm happy to say we are a church that has a heart for missions and is growing increasingly passionate about that heart for missions. Just this week, um, as we were praying through things, we picked up five new missionaries. Isn't that awesome? When I say picked them up, not like picked them up, but we picked them up on our roster of missionaries that we support financially on a monthly basis and that we pray for actively. And we at least once a year update you on that entire list, and we highlight one at the beginning of each month. It's, it's 30 or 40 missionaries now and organizations locally and globally. And this family here is getting ready to leave to a very sensitive area, so I can't give complete specifics, but we'll call it an Arabian Peninsula. It's an unreached area, and their first names are Robbie and Sarah, which is what I can say on a Sunday like this when we're broadcasting, they're going to an area that has 1.4 million people and is considered completely unreached with the gospel of Jesus. And I'm not exaggerating here at all, but from the collective um, data of all the missions organizations that do work like this, which there's a handful of ones that go into places like this and make it their focus, they estimate that there is not a lot more than a handful of believers in the entire nation. And there is no church of Christ, and there is no active witness for the gospel. And so this family has been called by God to go and live there. 
and share their lives with the people there and present the good news. And just because I know the, the cynical thinking sometimes that we have, because I can have these same thoughts, we don't go there and try to impose on them like American culture, right? We go there and just present the gospel that came from a man who was raised in the Middle East, right? Are you tracking with me? This message is for the world. And so the, the, the church that they plant there doesn't look like services or anything like this at all. It looks like preaching the good news to people by living your life with them and raising up disciples. And when they meet the Lord and get saved in areas like this, it costs them everything. I mean, it's like you're reading the book of Acts, is exactly what's going on there right now. So what I wanna do was introduce you to them. We're supporting them monthly financially right now, and I'm working on a date this fall to have them here in person potentially before um, they head back overseas. But I wanna pray. Uh, if you can pray with me for Robbie and Sarah. Lord, we thank you for this couple, these kids. We thank you for their willingness to say yes to your call on their life, even when it is a costly yes. Um, and I know they have so much passion uh, and so much vision and so much compassion to go and so much urgency with this. That we've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation and it can be really easy to, to share it in places uh, like Franklin or, or Nashville or Middle Tennessee. It can be really challenging uh, to share it in places like this Arabian Peninsula that you have called them to and the costs can be high. We, we know we have costs here too, and we know there's spiritual warfare here, and there's persecution here, but we also recognize um, it, is just not, it is just not the same thing as, as allowing people who come to know Jesus to be faced with the situation where they sometimes lose their business or lose their life or lose their family. So we pray. Uh, for those that you are calling to know you in this country, and we pray for this family, your protection, your covering, your provision, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I believe with all my heart that the same intentionality and passion that they are moving across the world with is the same intentionality and passion you should treat exactly where you are right now. I believe it with all my heart. You have been sent by the Lord to the people that you are with, to the place of employment, to the neighborhood. You might not stay there forever, but make no mistake, you are not there by accident. And when you are in a moment where you don't understand what God is doing, there's nothing better than you can do but begin to humble yourself and say, I'm gonna stay about the work of the Lord. Don't isolate and just throw pity parties, and it can be so easy to do it. And I don't mean to minimize it by even using the word pity party. That phrase is, that can sound condescending because we're talking about painful seasons of life. Even in the most painful seasons, when we begin to learn outward to that, look outward towards that work again, it changes everything. And it's the great command and the great commission is a simple way to think about it. Matthew 22, teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So focus on that. And then the great commission at the end of Matthew 28, before Jesus ascends back to heaven, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And let me just tell you, the great commission is not to me as a pastor. It is, but it's not only to me. It's to you as a follower of Jesus. You're actually called to be investing everything God is teaching you into someone else. And if you're not doing it, things don't work as well in your life as they're supposed to because you're not participating in the great command and in the great commission. Reading on, Jesus does something really wild in verse six. 
After saying this, he spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Talk about not understanding, right? I mean, can we just look, can we look at the text for what it really is with like outsider eyes and try to be objective about it and just say, this seems crazy. Anybody? It's not sacrilegious to say that. This seems crazy. Is anybody with me? Why would you spit on a dude that's been suffering on the street for four decades? And that was kind of funny, but in reality, I've heard, I've heard a, a, a Jewish leader say that in that day and time, they believed it was intentional that, that, that Jesus was using saliva because people would often spit on beggars to, to mock them, just walk by and spit on them. And it was this sense of redeeming and this sense of God bringing something full circle that still doesn't make sense to me even as I read it. And then Jesus said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And so the man went and washed and came home seeing. And so the command of Jesus worked. The works of God were displayed in this healing and they're still being displayed. We are talking about it and studying it today because the blind man in the middle of a moment, he does not understand, not just a moment, for decades he does not understand, chose to trust the voice in front of him whom he heard was Jesus and maybe this is the Messiah even after all this suffering, even after all this lack of understanding, I'm gonna trust this voice in front of me and he did it and he was healed. And we as humans tend to see anything that happens that's beautiful where God shows up and we immediately wanna replicate it. We don't just do it with scripture, we do it in our own lives. We try to put formulas on what God sovereignly does. So I don't know if anyone's ever done this, but I wouldn't be shocked if, if some kind of like weird offshoot of the church to merged where what they do is they spit and put mud on everybody's face. Cause you're like, that's what Jesus did. But I'm just telling you, not everything we read in scripture is meant to be prescriptive, meaning it's the same thing we're supposed to do. It's just descriptive of what Jesus did in that moment. Are you tracking with me? But the human nature is to try to add a formula to everything kind of so that we can control it and then trust the formula. And we don't just do it with crazy examples like this, but we do it in our own walk with God. And the closing question this morning is this, am I putting my trust in a formula or in the living God? And let me just say, there is a massive difference between these two things. Are you putting your trust in kind of a, a version of God that has given you formulas to hold on to and you're actually trusting the formula because you feel like you can control it, the problem is when God breaks out of that formula, where is your God? Who do you trust? Where do you run? And I wanna give this to you hopefully in the most encouraging way ever. Your hope is not in a formula, it's in God. And God's alive. And God is so far out of everything, he's higher than, broader than, you know, more wise than everything we can possibly imagine. And that's good news because when he does things that don't make sense to us, we can still trust him. When he allows things that don't make sense to us, we can still trust him. We don't have to run away from him. We can run towards him because he is the living God. And we're setting our expectations around trusting the living God, not trusting a formula. I love that line from Amazing Grace that we just sang. It was a hymn that was often not sung. And then Tomlin brought it back into, into his updated version. But it's, it's, I believe it's one of the historic lyrics. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. 
He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. I believe with all my heart in Christ, you have a guaranteed ending. He's promised good to you. Period. I believe that includes complete physical, emotional, mental healing. I believe that. I believe that's part of the new heavens and the new earth. I believe it involves meeting every one of the core desires of your heart is part of the promised good to you. But he's going to get us there in ways that we don't understand. And we don't necessarily step into that fullness, all of that realized tomorrow. We might step into some of it. We might not step into all of it. Tracking with me? What I want to encourage you is you need to make the shift, potentially. I think all of us, to some degree, need to shift from trusting the formula in our head about how God works to just trusting God. He's alive. And we have some core convictions about who we... Who we know he is. He is love. He is truth. He is justice. All those things I talked about earlier. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and we're going to participate in communion. Communion is going to be our response today. Anyone can take communion here. I just want you to know that by taking it, you're saying, I'm saying yes to God. Maybe for the first time or perhaps again. I'm saying yes to trusting him. If you need a packet, raise your hand right now, and one of our team members will bring it to you. There's a few hands going up, guys. Thank you. Hold it up for a second, and they'll bring you a packet. Go ahead and take it in your hands and take out the piece of bread on the top. Whew, man. Even what we're, rem what we're remembering right now reminds us of the truths that we're talking about. Imagine the disciples, and we know this from studying history and studying scripture, they wanted Jesus to come and solve the suffering of the world, the injustices of the world. The promised Messiah is going to free us, is going to right every wrong. And those are all good things to hold to, but they wanted him to physically do it right in front of them. And that's the same thing we want. <laughs> Have you thought about that? We're the exact same as the disciples of Jesus then. We want God to enter our situation and our world and fix it. Like, if you're God, come on. Like, why? Why? Why would this happen? What's the deal? We're just like the disciples, and that's not a bad place to be. And I find it incredibly profound to note what Jesus did in answer to that heart cry that we all have was not come in as the conquering military hero and punish all the bad and, and reward all the good. He entered the suffering. That's what he did. We're holding a piece of bread in our hands that I encourage you to just break like that. And that is representative of Jesus' body broken for us. It's like he says, I know it's not all right. It's like he says, I know it's a mess. I know it doesn't make sense. It's like he says, I know it's painful. I know your shame. I know your brokenness. I know your fear. I know your anger. I know all of it. And he doesn't like, you know, snap his fingers and fix it. He just steps right into it with you. And he says, here I am. 
How incredible. Now, of course, then he conquers sin and death and shame. He beats it. He wins. And he invites us into new life. But we just get this wrong in the church sometimes. He's with us in our suffering. And we have a guaranteed future that is good. And he's with, our, with us in our suffering right now. In 1 Corinthians, it said that when Jesus had given thanks, he took the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Lord, we thank you that you've entered into life with us. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable. And in, in my own limited mind, when I think about what you've done, and what you continue to do in our lives, it seems like the the only way. It's the only way. This was the way. This was the one option. And you did it. We're so thankful, God, that we don't sit alone in our suffering. And when there's no answers, at least we're sitting with you. Who is the answer? Lord. Forgive us for sometimes placing ourselves on the judgment seat and saying, I will be judged. I will decide. Forgive us for that. Forgive me for that. We step off of that and we, we say, you are the king. You are the king of all kings. You are the Lord of all lords. You know what it is to suffer. You know every soul on this earth. You know every problem we face. You know every bit of brokenness, every bit of injustice. You know all of it. You see it. We believe it breaks your heart even more than it breaks ours. You, you feel it. We have little flashes of feeling it. You feel it all the time. But we thank you that you have a plan. We thank you that you take even what the enemy intends for evil and use it for our good. We thank you that you love us even when we're on the wrong side of these situations. And we thank you that you swallowed up death and shame and brokenness in what you did on the cross. So we remember as we partake together. Let's eat. And in verse 25, Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you that your blood was shed for us and in our place and washes us clean. Even in the midst of challenging seasons of life when we don't have answers, your blood speaks a better word, even when we don't understand. And church, just pray this personally in your own heart. I'm gonna pray it out loud. Jesus, thank you for letting your blood be shed for me to forgive me of all my sins, all my sins guilt, all my shame. Every time I've hurt someone, every time I've ignored you, every time I've put myself, I've, every time I've set myself up as the judge and even hurt others, God, you forgive me. I thank you. I say yes to that forgiveness again today. Thank you, Jesus. Just say yes with me, church. We say yes to it, God. Yes to your forgiveness. Yes to your will. Yes to your way. Yes to your timing. You are God. Perfect. Father, I pray uh, for every person in the house right now. I, I pray, God, that whatever circumstance they find themselves in, God, that they would be reminded with overwhelming power that they're not alone and that you sit with us in our suffering. 
You sit with us in our questions. You even sit with us in our wandering, in our resistance of you. You sit with us. We thank you that you're so committed to every single one of us. And my friend, I just pray you'll receive it. God is so committed to you. You couldn't shake him if you wanted to. He will never stop pursuing you. Step right into your brokenness. And God, we pray for the comfort of the Spirit of God. We pray for the overwhelming weight of the glory of God to replace the weight of our circumstance, God. Let the weight of circumstance be cast off of us, but we'll let the beautiful weight of your glory fill this space, fill our homes, fill our hearts, fill our minds, fill our vehicles, God. May your word and your glory have more weight than the weight of our greatest challenge, God. And God, I also pray that whatever the issues are, we ask for divine intervention and miraculous power. If someone needs to be healed, we pray for healing in Jesus' name. We pray for those who are lost to come home. Come on, church, just pray with me for a minute. We're gonna dismiss in just a minute. Let's pray, let's pray and let our faith rise up. We pray for healing for those that need to be healed physically, emotionally. We pray for those that are lost and wandering to come home. God, we pray for those that need divine provision to receive it, God. We pray for those that are suffering with mental illnesses to receive clarity of thought and wholeness and peace. God, all the things that we are unaware of, we ask that you will minister in only the way you can. I even think of people that are watching online right now. Whatever is going on in their life, we pray that you would impact them powerfully wherever they're sitting right now, wherever they're standing. May the weight of your glory, God, overwhelm them, God. Totally change their perspective, God. We thank you, Lord. Even where things seem hopeless and, and, and old, you come in and make all things new. You blow the dust off of all the things that seem stagnant and you, re you revive us. You renew us. We thank you for it today. In Jesus' name. Um, we would love to journey with any of you that are going through anything. We believe in it. We have a great pastoral team here at the church that would just love to know what's going on, walk with you, pray with you. Not just myself, but we have Pastor Rob Rates. We have Pastor Heather, Oscar, Stephen, my wife. We have a bunch of wonderful people in our leadership community. Um, we don't know if you don't reach out, though. Don't let your suffering cause you to isolate. Let your suffering cause you to connect. Tracking with me? Let me pray this benediction over us. Uh, then we'll be dismissed. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord, the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Happy 4th, everybody. Be safe, have fun, love you.